Let's pray for, pray for us this morning. Father, we lift Ursula to you this morning and thank you for her. Thank you for her gifts. Thank you for uh, the way she serves you and serves us. Uh, would you bless her this morning as she preaches in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I, um, it's lovely to see you all. I did wonder how many would stay in the, under the duvet like I wanted to. <laughs> Um, so this morning we're carrying on looking at the story of Nehemiah. And in today's passage, he returns to Jerusalem and the work of rebuilding the walls of the city begin. Um, I won't bore you with the obvious joke about height. Uh, David covered that last week. <laughs> but let's start by setting this passage in context. The temple had been rebuilt under Zerubbabel and Ezra, saw the return of some 50,000 exiles and completed the restoration leading to temple worship. So the community had a focus for their worship. Um, Esther had saved her people from destruction and all this happened in the um, 100 year time period or some 100 year time period of 536 BC and 425 BC. We were in the Iron Age in this country. Um, and here in Nehemiah, we look at the conclusion of this particular aspect of Israel's history. Uh, Nehemiah, the story in Nehemiah is set between 444 and 425 BC. So what do we learn from Nehemiah and the accompanying text from Ezra and Esther about how to, how to face challenges in life? We've already heard from Peter and David on the previous two Sundays, haven't we, that Nehemiah believed in the power of prayer and perseverance. And as a godly leader, we'll see as we work our way through the book of Nehemiah that he motivated the Israelites to complete the reconstruction of the city walls despite severe opposition. He was a man with a servant heart, wasn't he? As cupbearer to the king, he took his life in his hands as he tasted the king's food to check it hadn't been poisoned. And when God called him to be part of the plan to restore the nation of Israel to their homeland, he showed himself to be both a servant of God and a servant of God's people. In times of crisis, God calls and God chooses, and he did that for Nehemiah. Nehemiah was his man for the job. Nehemiah was the one who would stay faithful to God and to the calling that God had placed on his life. He'd already intervened in the history of his people to avert the destruction by Haman. And you remember the words of Mordecai to Esther in Esther chapter 4, where they ring down through the centuries to us, don't they? And they say, how do you know you weren't sent for such a time as this? And it's sometimes encouraging for us to remember in situations which seem overwhelming or destructive or harmful that God raises up and equips people and us who can stand in the gap. Then following Esther's intervention on behalf of her people and Zerubbabel and Ezra beginning building the temple and the return of the exiled nation to Jerusalem, the house of God, the temple was rebuilt and the people again had a place where they could come together to worship 
and as a focus for their religious life. So the calamity of genocide had been averted. The temple had been restored, and now the story moves on, this time to the restoration of the city walls. This story is set in a time of conflict. Conflict seems to define the Middle East, doesn't it, even to this day? And the walls not only defined the footprint of the city, but gave strength and security to its residents. It's only in modern times that we've seen cities grow and spread and their walls have largely been replaced by motorways and ring roads. In ancient cities, they were the only real means of defence. The walls of the city of Babylon, which at the time was probably the largest city in existence, were 380 feet thick and 300, sorry, no, 100 feet high. I, I just can't begin to imagine how they managed to build walls like that. But this story tells us, as we face difficulties, when life's turns seem to be darker, we can trust that God is at work, not only to save us, but to restore us, to redeem the years that may look to have been unfruitful and the years that we remember as times of pain and loss we can have confidence that God says the same to us as he did to the people of Israel in Isaiah 41. I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And we can have confidence as we pray. Romans 8, 26 and 28 says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The Spirit is interceding for us. Verse 11 of Nehemiah tells us that he went to Jerusalem and stayed for three days and then he set out at night with a few others and he hadn't told anyone what God had put in his heart to do. He assessed the situation. And so, although our passage today is set in Jerusalem, God had set the train of events off years earlier, as we've heard, which culminated after prayer and a prompt from God to speak up for his people in the courts of a pagan king, with Nehemiah not only being released to travel some 800 miles to Jerusalem, but he was also provided with all he needed. And thus he arrived, and he waited three days before he set out to survey the walls. And although his survey was low-key, his arrival would surely have been known about. We told he arrived with an army, with letters of protection. The population of Jerusalem would have known of his arrival, and I'm sure that there would have been much speculation as to why he came As I read this part of the story, I remembered the story of Joseph in Genesis 
and how Joseph had told his brothers of his dream, of his vision from God, of his calling, and his brothers plotted to kill him and then sold him into slavery instead. Nehemiah didn't make the same mistake of revealing God's vision too soon. I wondered if Nehemiah already knew there would be opposition, and that's why he waits. Because we're told that when the work starts, the opposition begins immediately. So there's a moonlit tour of the walls to assess the damage and see the extent of the work needed. Was the job bigger than he first suspected? We don't know. But sometimes we only see a fuller picture of the work God has called us to once we've committed ourselves to it. Oftentimes our need for faith will increase when we're only truly aware of the facts of the situation or crisis. And having faith doesn't mean we're ignorant of the problems or that we're blind to the facts or that we're ignorant of the story that's taken place over a time period. And this is true for us as it was for Nehemiah. Stepping out in faith means looking at the problems, knowing the facts and understanding the journey and then looking to God and walking with him in trust and faith, knowing that he holds the bigger picture and his plans for us are for good. A vision may come to us supernaturally, but then God calls us to use all of our gifts and resources in fulfilling this vision. And as we see in the story of Nehemiah, there's no conflict, is there, between fulfilling a God-given vision and the hard and sometimes boring work of study, of investigation, of acquainting ourselves with the problems, and then stepping forward in faith. Then after the assessing, Nehemiah speaks to the population. He says in verse 17, you'll see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild. Nehemiah's speech to the citizens of Jerusalem is straightforward and to the point. But he identifies with them and with the situation. The tone of his speech is we together, not you must. He's given up home, position, power to become a citizen of Jerusalem, to identify himself as a returning exile. He's moved from the comfort of a royal palace to a city only partially rebuilt with no defensive walls to share the dangers and hardships of life. And he doesn't mince his words, does he? He says it how it is. Words like trouble and ruin and disgrace pepper his speech. He's not afraid to face the truth, to see the difficulties, but he's also a man of faith who sees the potential, sees the way forward, and sees the way to remedy the problems, and above all, knows that God is with him. And then comes the opposition. When things are going well, as they had been so far for Nehemiah, it can sometimes come as a bit of a shock when criticism and opposition start. But Nehemiah's response is simple. This is God's work we're doing. 
God's in charge. He doesn't get disheartened, but responds to the challenge. And the charge that Sambalat and Tobias and Gresham made could hardly be more serious. In Ezra 4, we're told that the king Ataxerxes had ordered work on the temple to be stopped because he realized that the Israelites had a long history of revolt and rebellion. And if this new accusation that they were making had been believed, the king could and probably would have ordered Nehemiah to stop the rebuild. He would have stopped it by force if necessary. The three accusers were angry that someone had come to displace the status quo and had a concern for the people of Israel. Sambalat and Tobiah had an arrangement with one of the priests at the temple which had left the temple officials deprived and shortchanged. Sometimes opposition comes from human traits, as it is in this case, such as self-interest and ambition, rather than a direct onslaught from a demonic force. But either way, we will see in a couple of chapters' time that Nehemiah sets watchmen to keep guard over the community as they build. So what relevance does the story of Nehemiah have for us? As we go through this series, I'm sure that we'll see many parallels to our individual and corporate experience. But today, I'd just like to touch on three of the themes. The first is foundations. As I read through the story of Nehemiah, it struck me that foundations are not particularly mentioned. The text tells us that the gates have been burned and that the walls are reduced to rubble in places. But the footprint of the walls was still there. Sometimes during the storms of life or when we feel oppressed, it can seem as if we're being rocked to our very foundations. And we've probably all seen the footprints poster where we're told that Jesus carries us during times of trial. And for most of us, I guess, there are probably times when we can relate to that experience and the sentiment has spoken into our situation. But the picture presented for us here in Nehemiah is that no matter how destructive or challenging life has been, our foundations are in Christ. And as I thought about this, I was reminded of the picture we were given as a fellowship a little while back now of a galleon that needed repair and restoration. But its foundation as a ship was still sound. It was still afloat. It hadn't sunk. It was the superstructure that needed repair. We go through cycles of life, don't we? We go through times of growth, times of feeling we've been knocked back, times of quiet, times of restoration, times of healing, times when we feel we're metaphorically flying. And if you're anything like me, it can sometimes feel as if the dark times in particular go on forever. But history tells us that they come to an end. That God will always lead us, his people, onward. 
and that it's his nature to restore the years the locust eats. And sometimes it's only through times of difficulty and challenge we realize just how secure our foundations are, even though we might wobble the underpinning hand of God will hold us. So what do we build with? A few thoughts. We've already started to explore a call to prayer, both corporately and as individuals. We're told Nehemiah took time before he shared his vision of rebuild. And then with just a few companions, he surveyed the scene. In Hebrews 10, 24, we hear, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do not neglect meeting together. There is a strength and encouragement that comes from being part of a Christian community. And here I suggest we can draw from the pattern of Nehemiah, of taking time to prayerfully survey the ground of our lives, and then in the company of a few trusted friends take stock and commit ourselves to whatever aspect of change and growth the Holy Spirit reveals. And I suspect that for each of us there will be different priorities, different areas that we sense may be a need for healing or restoration. Or maybe we'll sense a prompt by the Holy Spirit into fresh growth. Or maybe it'll be a deepening of our relationship with God through the saving knowledge that we have of Jesus. What will be the next step for me, for us? And corporately, as we consider the way forward as a community of believers, here is the opportunity for us to take stock, to use the building blocks of prayer, to immerse ourselves in scripture, of koinonia, which is fellowship, of pursuing common good, of communion. Jesus tells us in Mark 12, And we've already said it this morning, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. To love God with all our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves, these commandments would seem to be a good place to start as we prayerfully consider the road ahead. Let's not hide from looking at the broken down places, from those places where we feel far from adequate. But let's remember that God is in the business of healing and redeeming and restoring. He wants to mend the broken places and make them whole. And if we focus on Jesus and not on the world, we will change we will be transformed. We will become more like the people he created us to be. And let's rejoice in the good that there is, both corporately and individually, in this place, in Christchurch, Baston Hill. 
A few years ago, a thought struck me as I read through Nehemiah. Why bother? Why did God put everything in place, bring the right people at the right time together in history to rebuild Jerusalem? And one of the reasons I came up with a few years ago still applies today, that there were prophecies and visions for Jerusalem that had not yet been fulfilled. And it's the same for us here today as it was a few years ago. God has spoken prophetic words and given visions for this church, for this community of believers that are still unfulfilled. God has plans for us in his kingdom. But he warns us to build on good foundations, on the rock of hearing and doing his word, and not to be foolish and build on sand. With its walls rebuilt, Jerusalem will once more become a place of security, a place where the people of God can gather in safety to worship. With rebuilt gates, others will be welcomed into the city. It will be a place where the prophetic and the promises of God will come to pass. And it's the same for us here at Christchurch. And finally, I was thinking about Nehemiah and his calling from God. And it wasn't just Nehemiah, was it? Different sections of the walls would need different skills. Carpenters, stonemasons, people to serve food, people to collect supplies. The list would be very long and would include everyone. And although everyone brought different skills, there would be an interdependence, a common vision. Each person would know that they were using their unique gift and skill in the rebuild. And so it is for us. Each of us has a calling on our lives. Just like Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah and each of the people who helped build the city walls of Jerusalem, each one of us has a calling and a gift to build here in this place. And as we assess the present and look to the future, we might not know exactly what part God has for us or where God is calling us to stand up and be counted to say, yes, Lord, I recognize the work you have been doing in my life and the calling you have placed upon me. The skills I have, which I will use in the building of your kingdom. But as individuals and as a church community, let's say before our Lord in prayer, I might not see the whole picture, Lord, but I'm willing to trust you to lead me and to lead us as a fellowship onward. Amen.